It's showtime. Don't say it, please. Don't say it. No, I have to say it, Mitch. Showtime. Showtime. It's showtime, everybody. Showtime. Welcome back to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I am your host, Show. Thank you for being alongside me as always as we discuss, well, Usually I say here movies, but today I wanted to discuss something a little different. They always told me when I wanted to start a podcast, I know like everyone and their grandmother has a podcast now, but I was told when I wanted to start one that you should always be willing to let the podcast evolve naturally, right? Which is kind of why I went away from doing the whole, uh, let's try and pair two movies with some kind of similar premise or similar framing. I kind of went away from that because it ended up being not hard necessarily, but just kind of, it kind of pigeonholes you a little bit, right? So I was told to let things evolve naturally. And I mentioned this on the last episode, but with, with movies and TV, with the line between them being so thin in terms of quality and length and budget and so on, you know, I, I, I'm not exactly turning this into a TV podcast as well, but I did want to get to something that is pretty near and dear to my own heart, right? Star Wars is a franchise, a media franchise that I've spoken about before on this podcast, but in case you're just listening for the first time now, Star Wars is something that for me personally is pretty near and dear to my heart, right? I think it's still kind of weird to refer to it as a franchise because we know everyone and their and their mother wants uh, a media franchise that will that will you know spawn what multiple sequels and spin-offs and TV shows and movies and so on. You want merchandising and of course Star Wars probably uh, probably kind of you could probably point back to Star Wars for the whole merchandising thing certainly when it comes to movie franchises. But I don't know. I just Star Wars has always been going back to when I was younger something that has been really important to me, right? I mean, I, I have a Star Wars tattoo on my right shoulder. I've been to multiple Star Wars conventions, and I am very broken up that after holding the tickets for the current convention, which is happening right now as I record in Los Angeles, I guess Anaheim, really, at the Anaheim Convention Center, uh, I'm broken up that I couldn't go because, hey, extenuating circumstances are what they are. But I just I, Star Wars has meant a lot to me over my life. My My cousins, who are all more or less older than me they're all in their like mid to early to mid 40s very late 30s and uh they're the ones because i i have some younger siblings but i'm about eight and ten years older than my younger siblings and my cousins who are all about eight to ten if not more years older than me they grew up with the original trilogy and so when i hung out with them when i was younger they were kind of the ones who especially my cousin riaz they were the ones who like the stuff they liked was the stuff I liked, right? That's why I think I have a big a big love for Indiana Jones and Back to the Future and Die Hard and Transformers and all of these different things. I have a huge love for a lot of things that, that were released in the late 70s, early 80s. Star Trek, right? A lot of that stuff. The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, all that stuff. It's because of those guys, right? Dare I say wrestling as well, right? Like the, certainly, for me, maybe more of the Rock and Stone Cold era than anything else, but I grew up with that kind of stuff because they liked that stuff, right? Similarly, my sibling, especially my brother, who is who is eight years younger than me, he grew up liking Star Wars because I liked Star Wars. He grew up liking first-person shooters and video games like Halo and Goldeneye because I liked those games, right? So it's it's inter- always interesting to see how 
passions for things are handed down over, you know, kind of generation from generation, because most of my cousins are like the Gen X generation or the very eldest of the millennial group. And uh, anyway, so they passed down their love for Star Wars to me in the form of the VHS box set of the original trilogy, of course, Star Wars, which later later on became known as A New Hope, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, and of course, Return of the Jedi. And here we are in 2022. Now we have, what, 11 movies, nine in the Skywalker saga. You can count Solo and Rogue One in there as well. We have multiple television shows, multiple seasons of The Mandalorian. We have a season of The Book of Boba Fett, which I know not everyone loved. I generally enjoyed it. And now we have... Kenobi. I think it's called Kenobi. I, I, whenever you turn it on on Disney+, Plus, it actually says Obi-Wan Kenobi. Well, we'll just call it Kenobi, the six-part television event, as they call it. And it's, it's, hey, I mean, I'm glad we are getting more Star Wars content, no matter what. On this very podcast, we did the reviews of The Last Jedi. We did the reviews of The Rise of Skywalker. I really liked the former. I did not care for the latter. Um, But either way, I'll watch anything with the Star Wars brand on it because I like Star Wars, right? We don't have to have the discussion about media allegiances and whether or not franchises are bad for the industry and Disney and blah, blah, blah. We don't have to talk about that necessarily, but have like being aware of that as a person doesn't for me at least lessen my enjoyment of at least star Wars because again like i said it has meant a lot to me over the course of my life um i've got i've got i've done some pretty cool things like i've i got to meet george lucas back in 2005 you know that was before revenge of the sith came out at the indianapolis star wars convention i've gotten to meet ray park i met peter mayhew and david prouse before they passed away you know and I'm I'm so happy that Star Wars continues to exist to bring more fans into the fold. So, hey, Kenobi does that. The Clone Wars and Rebels did that. The prequels did that for a generation, largely my generation, even though I, I don't love the prequels. But still, hey, I, I, I recognize what they did for the fan base. And I'm sure in, in a couple of years, the sequels, I think by and large, they were liked by most people. It's just the hardcore fans. You can't please everyone. But at the same time, I'm sure the sequels will get their time in the limelight just like the prequels are getting now. So with that said, I I wanted to do something a little different on this podcast. I wanted to react a little bit to Kenobi. This is not going to turn into a TV show podcast, but I did want to devote some time over the next couple of weeks to this special Kenobi event because dare I say, Ewan McGregor is the best thing to come out of the prequels. I don't think that's a hot take. I think maybe some people might learn or might lean at... Uh, Qui-Gon Jinn, Liam Neeson, maybe they lean towards Ian McDiarmid getting a, a bigger role with Emperor Palpatine. Maybe they lean elsewhere. I don't really know. You like Jar Jar Binks and Ahmed Best? Hey, you go for it. More power to you, right? But for me, the best thing to come out of the prequels was always Ian McGregor and to see his evolution as a character from you know, relatively green Jedi Padawan to becoming a Jedi Knight, killing Darth Maul, I've always thought the prequels did a disservice in basically skipping the Clone Wars. And I know, again, I know the TV show exists, but I mean, to go from the the begun the Clone Wars have in at the end of Attack of the Clones to, and that's my Yoda impression, I hope you enjoy it, uh, to to just the end of the Clone Wars, the Battle of Coruscant, I, I just have always kind of, I always feel kind of shortchanged. And again, I have watched the Clone Wars and Rebels, but with Kenobi, it seems that we're going to get a more... 
maybe not comprehensive look at live action Order 66 and other Clone Wars era things, but certainly seems like we're going to get some more live action fleshing out of that period. So why don't we take a look back at the first couple of episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan. Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. I think my uncle knows him. He said he was dead. Oh, he's not dead. Not yet. You know him? Well, of course I know him. He's me. One of the things that always gets me, never fails to get me, when it comes to Star Wars is no matter what the property is, whenever I see that Lucasfilm logo kind of sparkle into existence on the screen and get filled out by the flashes of light, I have a huge, dumb, ear-to-ear grin on my face because I know something special is going to happen. And it doesn't really matter what you think of the Book of Boba Fett or any of the sequels or any of the prequels. Going back to the first one I ever saw live in theaters, which was The Phantom Menace, my dad took me to the theaters when I was nine years old. I remember we drove to see it at the theater, for those who listen in Toronto, um, at Fairview Mall when it was still, I believe, a... uh, a famous players. I think that's what it was called at the time. Dad took me to see that in 1999. I remember I begged him. I begged him to let me uh, go see uh, in 2002, the release of attack of the clones. And even as an, as an adult, even as a kid, I didn't love the movie because I thought it was a lot of talking and I did. I've always been a big fan of Django Fett. So to see Tamara Morrison return in the book of Boba Fett actually is pretty cool. But uh, at the same time, I begged my dad to take me to see it. He did. He obliged. And in 2005, he took me out of school to go see, or pardon me, to attend the 2005 Star Wars celebration in Indianapolis. And I will, I will remember that for the rest of my life. I got to meet Matthew Stover, who is a particularly prolific and very talented author, but especially within the Star Wars universe, wrote some very, very good books. Uh, Certainly, I got to meet George Lucas. I got to see Carrie Fisher on stage, which was the only time I ever got to see her before, of course, she passed away during the making of the sequel trilogy years and years later. And some other cool stuff as well. I got to meet Ray Park, who played Darth Maul. I had to shake his hand. I have a signed photo, a signed frame photo of Ray Park that he personally handed to me, a 15-year-old nerd. I just, Star Wars means a lot to me. So, So to see Kenobi come out here and... And and be good, I got to say, is very encouraging. Um, Deborah Chow directs and, I guess, show runs, quote unquote, the entire show. And Deborah Chow is responsible for some of the best episodes of The Mandalorian. Now, we if you've seen the making of The Mandalorian, you know that there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, right? I think there's what, like seven people or six directors or whatever it might be who were responsible for episodes in seasons one and two of The Mandalorian. I'm sure it's going to be the same way in season three. Deborah Chow is responsible for all of Kenobi. And for those who didn't love the book of Boba Fett, and I think that was partially because Robert Rodriguez, who is a relatively prolific film director himself, I think he tried to get too personally involved with some of the direction and and, and just like the general way the show was headed and, and, and creative decisions. I know those kinds of things are okayed by a Star Wars group, like a story group and so on, but... I don't know that I, I generally did enjoy the book of Boba Fett, but if you were if you were someone who didn't enjoy that, I think you'll be surprised pleasantly so 
by what you see on Kenobi because a big part of, I think, of what, what you like about it right off the bat is certainly the presence of Ewan McGregor, who I think, I dare say, has become a better actor in the last, gosh, I guess he hung up the, the lightsaber and the robes for, uh, for Obi-Wan back when Revenge of the Sith came out, which was in 2005. So I guess, what was that, 17 years ago, 16, 17 years ago? That's a long time, <laughs> right? That's a long time ago. He has become a better actor. He emotes so well with his face, right? I mean, again, I I don't know how much acting, quote-unquote acting, is going on in these Star Wars shows to begin with, but, boy, he, he emotes incredibly well with his eyebrows and his eyes. I mean, makeup is a part of it. He is also aged naturally, but the the makeup around his eyes and the wrinkles kind of showing his age and showing the depth of emotional torment this man has gone through over the past 10 years because you see a flashback to Order 66, which takes place during the Revenge of the Sith, and then it hops forward to present day, quote-unquote present day, and you see 10 years later, Obi-Wan is living on Tatooine. He's watching over a young Luke Skywalker. I thought one of the creative choices that was really interesting in Episode 1, because Parts two and uh, parts 1 and 2 came out uh, back-to-back together last night, so... I thought one of the interesting parts of part one was showing the the doldrums that Obi-Wan had found himself in on a day-to-day basis, right? You see him go to work. He literally clocks in and clocks out of work. He's just doing some menial labor work. He's stuck in the routine, cutting a slice of alien fish thing <laughs> for his uh, for his mount. Um, the alien fish thing kind of looked like the progenitor from Knights of the Old Republic. You guys remember that video game? I think it's the best Star Wars video game of all time, even to this day. I know, yeah, sure, Fallen Order, whatever. Although Jedi Survivor does look pretty cool. That came out from the uh, convention, I guess it was earlier today. But um, either way, Knights of the Old Republic, best video game of all time, best Star Wars video game of all time. Fight me and you'll lose because it's absolutely fantastic. But when you go to Manan on that planet, the progenitor, which is essentially a giant, I think they were called Faraxa sharks. It, this looks like a giant Faraxa shark, but of course it's like in the middle of sand, so how could it be? But it just, I don't know, the design kind of reminded me of Knights of the Old Republic. But anyways, uh, you see Obi-Wan stuck in the doldrums. He's cutting these pieces of whatever it is to feed to his mount, and he he meets Owen. You see the burn from the trailer. He talks about failing Anakin or failing Luke, just like he failed Anakin. I thought it was kind of nice that Obi-Wan is essentially like Jedi Santa Claus. He's picking up the, the T-14 Skyhopper model and he's giving it to Luke, which you actually see Luke use in A New Hope, right? Remember, he's like sitting down, he's kind of playing with it, he's flying in the air. I guess those are the kinds of things he flew as a, as a burgeoning pilot because remember, Luke wanted to apply to the Imperial Academy and of course he never got that chance, but... I wonder if that's the same one from A New Hope. Maybe it's not because Ben throws it out, but maybe by the end of the series, something will happen to show Luke actually getting that toy in the end. I thought that was a sweet moment that Ben Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, still cares about Luke and and not just protecting him, but like caring about him like he is kind of his own son, which, of course, as you recall, the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan is such that that would make sense, right? But I, the entire first episode takes place on Tatooine. You kind of meet Reva, the third sister, who, of course, is clearly the primary antagonist of this series. Moses Malone plays her. If you recall, she was from uh, The Queen's Gambit. She was very good in The Queen's Gambit as well, but uh, she, here she is as one of the Inquisitors. I don't think it's a too hot a take to say that she's probably one of the Padawans we see in the Order 66 flashback at the very beginning of the show because, I mean, 
why else show that, right? Just to, I mean, who? Maybe all the Inquisitors are those are those kids, right? Who knows? Or, or a large chunk of them are. Or maybe to save them, she gives herself up as a little as a little child while they're on the run. Maybe she gives herself up to the new Empire and is trained. Um, I saw some people kind of kick around the question: How does Reva know that Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker? I think that's another reason why she must be one of the Padawans, because if she was a Padawan, you would know one of the heroes of the Jedi Order, and you would not forget that. I, You know, you see in the—and they did a great job with the prequel recap at the beginning of Episode 1, but uh, it reminds us that Obi-Wan sees Anakin become, quote-unquote, Darth Vader, as, as a, a, you know, with all his limbs intact, <laughs> Darth Vader, uh, the, uh, the uh, hollow projector, right, with Yoda when they go back to the Jedi Temple to, to make sure that no other Jedi survivors are attracted to the Jedi Temple by this false signal the Temple is sending out. So that's when Obi-Wan sees it for the first time. He turns it off in disgust and sadness and so on, and they fight on Mustafar, and, and we know what happens there. But it does make you wonder... If Reva is a former Padawan, she must have knowledge of the archives. And maybe as an Inquisitor, she went back and found out. Maybe she saw that same file, right? Maybe she saw that. I think there's, I guess what I'm saying is there's any way to make Reva in possession of that knowledge that uh, Anakin is Darth Vader, right? So I don't think that's a plot hole by any means. I think that's completely fine. The other half of it, of course, is that the Grand Inquisitor, who's played by Rupert Friend, and I can't unsee Rupert Friend, although I do love the eyes and the kind of the kind of makeup, the shadow under the eyes. He is a Powon, and uh, we saw, if you recall, uh, the Grand Inquisitor, of course, in the in the animated series, and we know the Grand Inquisitor survives. We know that he does not die because he is in those other shows. So I think I get the sense that the show as a like narratively wants you to know that the Grand Inquisitor is not a villain for the most of the show, right? He is not. That was just you as a Star Wars fan getting a little glimpse of someone you knew, someone who is not going to die because we know, we know Kenobi doesn't die. We know Darth Vader doesn't die. We know Owen doesn't die, you know, yet. <laughs> At least, right? I mean, I guess all those other people actually do die at some point, but uh, we have no idea what the fate of Reva is. You gotta assume that at some point, Kenobi will either kill her, or the Grand Inquisitor will kill her, or Vader will kill her, right? I think I, I, I would be shocked if she lives. If she does live, hey, con- consider my expectations subverted, to use a phrase that Star Wars fans hate, but uh, I think that is narratively just showing that the Grand Inquisitor is not a part of this. And hey, I mean, this is a universe where Darth Maul literally survived getting bisected by Obi-Wan himself and then falling down a bottomless pit. So if he can survive that, the Grand Inquisitor can survive one lightsaber to the gut because the story calls for it, right? I'm, I don't think that is the wildest suspension of disbelief in the Star Wars universe. I think we're okay there. Uh, but Reva is clearly the main villain. I thought Moses Malone does a good job of making her seem like angry and vengeful for some reason against Kenobi. Maybe she feels that Kenobi failed her as a Padawan because he let Anakin fall to the dark side or he didn't take care of business when he should have. I don't know, right? Maybe, I, I don't know what the, the the reasoning might be there, but that has got to be it because Reva is a fascinating character. A little bit of a similar backstory, kind of, in terms of former Padawan turned to the dark side as Trilla from Jedi the Fallen Order, but I guess it's just Fallen Order, not the Fallen Order, but... The Inquisitors have always been a fascinating part of Star Wars lore that the animated series introduced, and I'm glad we're seeing a little more of them. I just hope we don't see that weird, like, helicopter lightsaber thing where they, like, literally fly away. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. I don't mind their twirly lightsabers, but when they fly away using the lightsaber, that's just, come on. That's stupid, right? Uh, Soon Kang being the other Inquisitor we see much of, 
If you're wondering why he seems familiar, he is Han from the Fast and the Furious movies. I was, I'm watching him like most of this time being like, why the hell does this guy look so familiar? And then I realized it is Han, who people, if you remember, joked being Han Solo because he was from, he was Korean, Seoul, like Seoul in South Korea, Han Solo. Uh, it was a dumb joke then, and it's a dumb joke now, but to see him kind of come full circle in Star Wars, I think is actually pretty funny. Um, Kumail Nanjiani with another standout role. I was convinced, okay? I was convinced that Kumail Nanjiani was going to be a droid or some funny-looking alien when they said prior to the show coming out that he was going to be in this TV show, much like uh, Lupita Nyong'o was with um, Maz in uh, the sequels, which, look, I actually do... By and large, I like The Force Awakens. I really like The uh, the Last Jedi. And yeah, like I said, I don't care for The Rise of Skywalker. I was thrilled to hear that Lupita Nyong'o was going to be in Star Wars. And I can't believe they made her an ugly little alien. Like, why cast Lupita Nyong'o if we're not going to have her be a person? I don't know. I, that bothers me to no end. But um, I was really afraid that was going to be the case with Kumail Nanjiani. Um, representing some brown people, I might say. And uh, I like that he is kind of like a grifter, a little shyster, right? He goes out there and scams people. I kind of like that. So I um, I also liked him being a little altruistic at the end. You're probably a little easy to see that coming, right? But um, an easy sell from Kumail Nanjiani, who, uh, of course, is, if you if you recall, was, I think, I, I would say most people's familiarity with him from a movie perspective might be The Big Sick, because that movie was nominated for an Oscar. But again, Kumail Nanjiani... Um, I, I, I liked him in the Eternals. He probably was one of the better parts of the Eternals as King Owen. It's kind of cool to see him getting more mainstream roles. You don't see that too often for like, like non, like non-white people, honestly, like for minorities, you don't see like a lot of that, especially for, for Brown people. And I, speaking as a Brown person myself, you don't see a ton of that. And I'm glad it's becoming more common and Hey, I'll, I'll take it when I can get it, especially when it's Kumail Nanjiani. Uh, but that's the, the first episode was definitely a very much self-contained episode. You could kind of see Obi-Wan make his decision when he sees the Jedi, who he basically refuses to help. He basically makes his decision when Bail comes back to Tatooine. Bail Organa, of course, the man who is a senator for Alderaan in the Imperial Senate. I guess the Republic Senate, now the Imperial Senate. And, of course, uh, he is the wife of the Queen of Alderaan and now the adoptive father of Leia. And I got to say, the the... The addition of Leia as a child, I think, is definitely one of the more unexpected things in terms of how they were going to get Obi-Wan off of Tatooine. Because I'm sure I speak for a lot of people when I say, I think we're all sick of Tatooine, right? I think we're sick of it in Boba Fett. I think we're sick of seeing Mandalorian go back there for the umpteenth time. I understand it's an important place in the Star Wars lore because a lot of stuff happens there. But I think, I mean, there's like a zillion other planets out there. Go to literally any one of them. And I'm glad they did. And uh, seeing Leia, sorry, well, first of all, going to Alderaan was cool because they always talk about how Alderaan is some like technological, beautiful paradise of a world. And they really made it seem like future world, but also with a bit of nature mixed in. Uh, and the, I will say the kid who plays Leia is not annoying. I don't know. I'm not. I've said this before on this podcast. I'm not a huge fan of kids uh, in T-shows, much less in things like you know, where, where they're the massive part of the storytelling and the narrative. But the kid who plays young Leia, I feel like Carrie Fisher would have loved this young girl, right? Carrie Fisher was outside of the character of Leia. She was like that in real life. Like she was very spunky. She said whatever she wanted basically. And I feel like maybe they took that a little bit to heart when they were doing 
uh, when they were doing the the casting and, and writing the dialogue for this young girl. But she's absolutely fantastic. Love the way Alderaan looks. Um, I love that we're getting a little more from the queen. I think it's Queen Breha, I think is her mother's name. But uh, pretty cool to see Alderaan on in live action beyond some deleted scenes from Revenge of the Sith or whatever, right? So that's pretty cool. And it was also pretty cool seeing Jimmy Smith again, who, of course, is reprising his role as the senator. Um, but again, look, I think adding Leia to this show, I think, was a great move. I feel like seeing her trying to manipulate him into showing his Jedi powers, I thought that was pretty interesting as well. It does kind of make you laugh because, of course, you see the uh, the famous help me, one, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. That message, I think in it, she says something like, you served with my father during the Clone Wars and now I'm calling on you again or something like that. You would think if this was the case, she'd also add, oh yeah, by the way, I remember that time you helped me when I was kidnapped by space pirates. Also, I remember that. I would love your help again. I guess that part of the message, R2 scrubbed that part of the message, I guess, right? (laughs) Uh, I guess that part got lost in translation. R2 didn't want to have that go through (laughs) to Luke, but I I think that's a fantastic way to get him out of hiding and... I'm interested to see what Reva ends up having as her motivation. And I guess as a final thing, to see Vader in the back to tank, I think is really cool because it does. I mean, hey, I mean, we knew Hayden Christensen was suiting up as Vader. We know he's going to be in it at some point. I do wonder if we get some raw, un- unadulterated brutality from Darth Vader, kind of in the same vein from Rogue One in that hallway scene at the end of the movie where he just chops down rubbles like he's, you know, cutting some vegetables or something. Like, he does not give an F, right? So I would love to see some more of that, maybe some more rage from Vader as he hunts down Jedi or maybe as he takes it out on Reva or the Grand Inquisitor or Obi-Wan. You got to imagine that we're going to see Vader and Obi-Wan fight, which I guess does lend some more credence to and some more nuance to what Vader says to Obi-Wan on the Death Star in the original 1977 movie. I've been waiting for you, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. Right, because now it, it does kind of make sense that what he what he's saying there right because it maybe maybe when you see revenge of the sith it also makes sense but having them fight one more time since then i guess still also makes sense although it would make sense as well that obi-wan would then best vader in this in this in this kind of rematch of the century as they seem to be building it here um but again i'm, I'm looking forward to what vader looks like i wonder also if we might get some flashbacks to live action Hayden Christensen, Ewan McGregor fighting together alongside each other in the Clone Wars. Maybe, maybe uh, Rosario Dawson as Ahsoka. Maybe she'll be in it there at some point as well. I just think there, there's some potential there to, what's the right word, normalize or popularize perhaps the Clone Wars and Rebels to an audience that had not seen them, right? Because look, hardcore Star Wars fans like me, and probably you if you're listening to this episode of the podcast, Look, they, you guys and, and I, we're, we've watched that. We're not the audience, right? The audience for this certainly to a degree is hardcore fans, but it is also the fans who never bothered watching an animated show because whether we like it or not, animated TV shows are will always likely be viewed as for being, being for children, right? And I, I don't agree with that. Animation is just another medium of telling a story, and 
I mean, hey, I mean, to be fair, this first season of Clone Wars was very much a children's show, and then they kind of got dark real quick uh, with things like the clone troopers. And I mean, heck, the season is a season seven, whichever one came out during the pandemic authored by Disney. Uh, hey, that is some of the best TV, maybe best parts of Star Wars, period. Right. But again, how many people watch that? That wa- like the, how many casual fans watch that? Dare I say not a lot. Right. So. There's a lot of like a huge subsection of casual Star Wars fans who like Star Wars, who have watched Star Wars for years, who have never seen anything about Anakin and Obi-Wan fighting together in the Clone Wars. And I suspect that is where we might get some flashbacks, but it would also be pretty cool to see Ewan McGregor, Hayden Christensen go toe-to-toe as Anakin, um, as Darth Vader, I guess, versus Obi-Wan Kenobi. But I think uh, there's still a lot of Kenobi left, and, and, and I know we've touched a lot on uh, some generalities here. Um, some little things, I guess, too. It was pretty cool seeing Obi-Wan's lightsaber buried next to Luke's, or part of being next to uh, next to Anakin's lightsaber. It's also kind of funny if you think that that lightsaber was wielded by several different people. It was wielded by, wielded by Anakin. It's wielded by Luke. It is wielded by Rey. It's then broken and then rewielded by her as well. And then it's also buried twice on Tatooine, if you think about it. It's buried by Obi-Wan and then again by Rey at the end of Rise of Skywalker, which is kind of funny, right? So um, that was a a funny little, um, I don't know if it's necessarily a callback, but I thought that was pretty funny. I also think that as soon as Obi-Wan decides that he wants to get back in the fight, he essentially just puts on his Jedi robes. Okay, this guy is not good at being inconspicuous. He has the exact same haircut, the exact same beard, and at the same time, he just puts on his Jedi robes and then is holding his lightsaber out like some loose gun out there for anyone to see. Like, this guy really wants you to try him, it would seem, right? But anyways, we haven't seen him wield a lightsaber yet in these first two episodes. But, I mean, I have no doubt it's coming considering, uh, well, he doesn't die. And you would imagine he has to wield it at some point. Uh, but, of course, still a lot of Kenobi left. Still, I guess there's about four more parts. So the plan is to do a kind of reaction podcast after every part. So I think they're coming out on Wednesdays. So Wednesdays, Thursdays, we'll probably record and then we'll get it out the following day. But hey, something new here on the Showtime Movie Podcast and pretty much driven exclusively by my love of Star Wars. So hey, we might not do it for every big thing Star Wars does, but for now, uh, we'll see how it goes. But thank you for listening to this special edition of the Showtime Movie Podcast, the Kenobi Cast let's call it here on the podcast. But I'm Show. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more Kenobi reaction. Have a good night.